An Account of Egypt by Herodotus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Account of Egypt by Herodotus. Among the Hellenes, Heracles and Dionysos and Pan are accounted the lastest born of the gods. But with the Egyptians, Pan is a very ancient god, and he is one of those which are called eight gods, while Heracles is of the second rank, who are called the twelve gods, and Dionysos is of the third rank, namely of those who were born of the twelve gods. Now as to Heracles I have shown already how many years old he is according to the Egyptians themselves, reckoning down to the reign of Amasis, and Pan is said to have existed for yet more years than these, and Dionysus for the smallest number of years as compared with the others. And even for this last they reckoned down to the reign of Amasis fifteen thousand years. This the Egyptians say that they know for a certainty, since they have always kept a reckoning and wrote down the years as they came. Now the Dionysus, who is said to have been born of Semele, the daughter of Cadmus, was born about sixteen hundred years before my time and Heracles, who was the son of Alcmene, about nine hundred years, and that Pan, who was born of Penelope, for of her and of Hermes, Pan is said by the Hellenes to have been born, came into being later than the wars of Troy, about eight hundred years before my time. Of these two accounts every man may adopt that one, which he shall find the more credible when he hears it. I, however, for my part, have already declared my opinion about them. For if these also, like Heracles, the son of Amphitryon, had appeared before all men's eyes, and had lived their lives to old age in Hellas, I mean Dionysos, the son of Semele, and Pan, the son of Penelope, then one would have said that these also had been born mere men, having the names of those gods who had come into being long before. But as it is with regard to Dionysus, the Hellenes say that as soon as he was born, Zeus sewed him up in his thigh and carried him to Nysa which is above Egypt in the land of Ethiopia. And as to Pan, they cannot say whether he went after he was born. Hence it has become clear to me that the Hellenes learnt the names of these gods later than those of other gods, and traced their descent as if their birth occurred at the time when they first learnt of their names. Thus far, then, the history is told by the Egyptians themselves. But I will now recount that which other nations also tell in the Egyptians in agreement with the others, of that which happened in this land, and there will be added to this also something of that which I have myself seen. Being set free after the reign of the priest of Hephaistos, the Egyptians, since they could not live any time without a king, set up over them twelve kings, having divided all Egypt into twelve parts. These made intermarriages with one another, and reigned, making agreement that they would not put down one another by force, nor seek to get an advantage over one another but would live in perfect friendship. And the reason why they made these agreements, guarding them very strongly from violation, was this, namely that an oracle had been given to them at first when they began to exercise their rule, that he of them who should pour a libation with a bronze cup in the temple of Hephaistos should be king of all Egypt. For they used to assemble together in all the temples. Moreover, they resolved to join all together and leave a memorial of themselves, and having so resolved, they caused to be made a labyrinth, situated a little above the lake of Moiris, and nearly opposite to that which is called the city of crocodiles. This I saw myself, and I found it greater than words can say. 
For if one should put together and reckon up all the buildings and all the great works produced by Hellenes, they would prove to be inferior in labor and expense to this labyrinth. Though it is true that both the temple at Ephesus and that at Samos are works worthy of note. The pyramids also were greater than words can say, and each one of them is equal to many works of the Hellenes, great as they may be. But the labyrinth surpasses even the pyramids. It has twelve courts covered in with gates facing one another, six upon the north side and six upon the south, joining on one to another, and the same wall surrounds them all outside, and there are in it two kinds of chambers, the one kind below the ground and the other above, upon these three thousand in number of each kind, fifteen hundred. The upper set of chambers we ourselves saw, going through them, and we tell of them having looked upon them with our own eyes. But the chambers underground we heard about only, for the Egyptians who had charge of them were not willing on any account to show them, saying that here were the sepulchres of the kings who had first built this labyrinth, and of the sacred crocodiles. Accordingly we speak of the chambers below by what we received from hearsay, while those above we saw ourselves and found them to be works of more than human greatness. For the passages through the chambers, and the goings this way and that way through the courts, which were admirably adorned, afforded endless matter for marvel as we went through from a court to the chambers beyond it, and from the chambers to colonnades, and from the colonnades to other rooms, and then from the chambers again to other courts. Over the whole of these is a roof made of stone like the walls, and the walls are covered with figures carved upon them, each court being surrounded with pillars of white stone fitted together most perfectly, and at the end of the labyrinth, by the corner of it, there is a pyramid of forty fathoms, upon which large figures are carved, and to this there is a way made under the ground. Such is this labyrinth, but a cause for marvel even greater than this is afforded by the lake, which is called the Lake of Moiris, along the side of which this labyrinth is built. The measure of its circuit is three thousand six hundred furlongs, being sixty shoins, and this is the same number of furlongs as the extent of Egypt itself along the sea. This lake lies extended lengthwise from north to south, and in depth where it is deepest it is fifty fathoms. That this lake is artificial and formed by digging is self-evident, for about in the middle of the lake stand two pyramids, each rising above the water to a height of fifty fathoms, the part which is built below the water being of just the same height, and upon each is placed a colossal statue of stone sitting upon a chair. Thus the pyramids are a hundred fathoms high, and these hundred fathoms are equal to a furlong of six hundred feet the fathom being measured as six feet or four cubits, the feet being four palms each and the cubits six. The water in the lake does not come from the place where it is, for the country there is very deficient in water, but it has been brought thither from the Nile by a canal, and for six months the water flows into the lake, and for six months out into the Nile again. And whenever it flows out, then for six months it brings into the royal treasury a talent of silver a day from the fish which are caught, and twenty pounds when the water comes in. The natives of the place, moreover, said that this lake had an outlet underground to the Sirtis, which is in Libya, turning towards the interior of the continent upon the western side and running along by the mountain which is above Memphis. Now since I did not see anywhere existing the earth dug out of this excavation, for that was a matter which drew my attention, I asked those who dwelt nearest to the lake where the earth was which had been dug out. These told me to what place it had been carried away, and I readily believed them, 
for I knew by report that a similar thing had been done at Nineveh, the city of the Assyrians. There certain thieves formed a design once to carry away the wealth of Sardanopolis, son of Ninos the king, which wealth was very great and was kept in treasure-houses under the earth. Accordingly they began from their own dwelling, and making estimate of their direction they dug underground towards the king's palace. And the earth which was brought out of the excavation they used to carry away when night came on, to the river Tigris which flows by the city of Nineveh, until at last they accomplished that which they desired. Similarly, as I heard, the digging of the lake in Egypt was effected, except that it was not done by night but during the day, for as they dug the Egyptians carried to the Nile the earth which was dug out, and the river when it received it would naturally bear it away and disperse it. Thus is this lake said to have been dug out. Now the twelve kings continued to rule justly, but in course of time it happened thus. After sacrifice in the temple of Hephaistos, they were about to make libation on the last day of the feast. And the chief priest, in bringing out for them the golden cups with which they had been wont to pour libations, missed his reckoning and brought eleven only for the twelve kings. Then that one of them who was standing last in order, namely Sematikos, since he had no cup, took off from his head his helmet, which was bronze, and having held it out to receive the wine, he proceeded to make a libation. Likewise all the other kings were wont to wear the helmets, and they happened to have them then. Now Sematikos held out his helmet with no treacherous meaning, but they taking note of that which had been done by Sematikos and of the oracle, namely how it had been declared to them that whosoever of them should make a libation with a bronze cup should be sole king of Egypt, recollecting, I say, the saying of the oracle, they did not indeed deem it right to slay Sematikos, since they found by examination that he had not done it with any forethought. But they determined to strip him of almost all his powers, and to drive him away into the Finn country, and that from the Finn country he should not hold any dealings with the rest of Egypt. This Sematikos had formerly been a fugitive from the Ethiopian Sabakos, who had killed his father Nekos. From him, I say, he had then been a fugitive in Syria. And when the Ethiopian had departed in consequence of the vision of the dream, the Egyptians who were of the district of Sais brought him back to his own country. Then afterwards when he was king it was his fate to be a fugitive a second time on account of the helmet, being driven by the eleven kings into the Fen country. So then holding that he had been grievously wronged by them, he thought how he might take vengeance on those who had driven him out. And when he had sent to the oracle of Leto in the city of Buto, where the Egyptians have their most truthful oracle, there was given to him the reply that vengeance would come when men of bronze appeared from the sea. And he was strongly disposed not to believe that bronze men would come to help him. But after no long time had passed, certain Ionians and Carians who had sailed forth for plunder were compelled to come to shore in Egypt. And they, having landed and being clad in bronze armor, came to the Fenland and brought a report to Semeticos that bronze men had come from the sea, and were plundering the plain. So he, perceiving that the saying of the oracle was coming to pass, dealt in a friendly manner with the Ionians and Carians, and with large promises he persuaded them to take his part. Then when he had persuaded them, with the help of those Egyptians who favored his cause, and of these foreign mercenaries, he overthrew the kings. Having thus got power over all Egypt, Semeticos made for Hephaistos that gateway of the temple at Memphis which is turned towards the south wind. And he built a court for Apis, in which Apis is kept when he appears, opposite to the gateway of the temple, 
surrounded all with pillars and covered with figures and instead of columns there stand to support the roof of the court colossal statues twelve cubits high now apis is in the tongue of the hellenes apaphos to the ionians and to the carians who had helped them semeticos granted portions of land to dwell in opposite to one another with the river nile between and these were called encampments these portions of land he gave them and he paid them besides all that he had promised moreover he placed with them egyptian boys to have them taught the hellenic tongue and from these who learnt the language thoroughly are descended the present class of interpreters in egypt now the ionians and carians occupied these portions of land for a long time and they are towards the sea a little below the city of bubastus on that which is called the pelusian mouth of the nile these men king amasis afterwards removed from thence and established them at memphis making them into a guard for himself against the egyptians and they being settled in egypt we who are hellenes know by intercourse with them the certainty of all that which happened in egypt beginning from king semeticos and afterwards for these were the first men of foreign tongue who settled in egypt and in the land from which they were removed there still remain down to my time the sheds where their ships were drawn up and the ruins of their houses thus then semeticos obtained egypt and of the oracle which is in egypt i have made mention often before this and now i give an account of it seeing that it is worthy to be described this oracle which is in egypt is sacred to leto and is established in a great city near that mouth of the nile which is called sibinudic as one sails up the river from the sea and the name of this city where the oracle is found is buto as i have said before in mentioning it in this buto there is a temple of apollo and artemis and the temple house of leto in which the oracle is is both great in itself and has a gateway of the height of ten fathoms but that which caused me most to marvel of the things to be seen there i will now tell there is in this sacred enclosure a house of leto made of one single stone upon the top the cornice measuring four cubits this house then of all things that were to be seen by me in that temple is the most marvellous and among those which come next is the island called chemis this is situated in a deep and broad lake by the side of the temple at buto and is said by the egyptians that this island is a floating island i myself did not see it either floating about or moved from its place and i feel surprised at the hearing of it wondering if it be indeed a floating island in this island of which i speak there is a great temple house of apollo and three several altars are set up within and there are planted in the island many palm trees and other trees both bearing fruit and not bearing fruit and the egyptians when they say that it is floating add this story namely that in this island which formerly was not floating leto being one of the eight gods who came into existence first and dwelling in the city of buto where she has this oracle received apollo from isis as a charge and preserved him concealing him in the island which is now said to be a floating island at that time when typhon came after him seeking everywhere and desiring to find the son of osiris now they say that apollo and artemis are children of dionysus and of isis and that leto became their nurse and preserver and in the egyptian tongue apollo is orus demeter is isis and artemis is bubastis from this story and from no other aeschylus the son of euphorion took this which i shall say wherein he differs from all the preceding poets he represented namely that artemis was the daughter of demeter for this reason then they say it became a floating island such is the story which they tell but as for semeticos 
He was king over Egypt for four and fifty years, of which for thirty years save one he was sitting before Azotos, a great city of Syria, besieging it until at last he took it. And this Azotos of all cities about which we have knowledge held out for the longest time under a siege. The son of Semedikos was Nekos, and he became king of Egypt. This man was the first who attempted the channel leading to the Erythrean Sea, which Darius the Persian afterwards completed. The length of this is a voyage of four days, and in breadth it was so dug that two triremes could go side by side driven by oars, and the water is brought into it from the Nile. The channel is conducted a little above the city of Bubastis, by Petumos, the Arabian city, and runs into the Erythrean Sea. And it is dug first along those parts of the plain of Egypt which lie towards Arabia, just above which run the mountains which extend opposite Memphis, where are the stone quarries. Along the base of these mountains the channel is conducted from west to east for a great way, and after that it is directed towards a break in the hills, and tends from these mountains toward the noonday and the south wind to the Arabian Gulf. Now in the place where the journey is least and shortest from the northern to the southern sea, which is also called Erythrean, that is, from Mount Kazion, which is the boundary between Egypt and Syria, the distance is exactly a thousand furlongs to the Arabian Gulf. But the channel is much longer, since it is more winding, and in the reign of Nekos there perished while digging it twelve myriads of the Egyptians. Now Nekos ceased in the midst of his digging, because the utterance of an oracle impeded him, which was to the effect that he was working for the barbarian, and the Egyptians call all men barbarians who do not agree with them in speech. Thus having ceased from the work of the channel, Nekos betook himself to raging wars, and triremes were built by him, some for the northern sea and others in the Arabian Gulf for the Erythrean Sea. And of these the sheds are still to be seen. These ships he used when he needed them, and also on land Nekos engaged battle at Magdalos with the Syrians, and conquered them. And after this he took Cadutus, which is a great city of Syria, and the dress which he wore when he made these conquests he dedicated to Apollo, sending it to Branchidae of the Milesians. After this, having reigned in all sixteen years, he brought his life to an end and handed on the kingdom to Samus his son. While this Samus was king of Egypt, there came to him men sent by the Eleans, who boasted that they ordered the contest at Olympia in the most just and honorable manner possible, and thought that not even the Egyptians, the wisest of men, could find out anything besides to be added to their rules. Now when the Eleasans came to Egypt, and said that for which they had come, then this king called together those of the Egyptians, who were reputed the wisest. And when the Egyptians had come together, they heard the Eleans tell of all that which it was their part to do in regard to the contest. And when they had related everything, they said that they had come to learn in addition anything which the Egyptians might be able to find out besides, which was juster than this. They then, having consulted together, asked the Eleans whether their own citizens took part in the contest, and they said that it was permitted to any one who desired it to take part in the contest, upon which the Egyptians said that in so ordering the games they had wholly missed the mark of justice, for it could not be but that they would take part with the man of their own state if he was contending, and so act unfairly to the stranger. But if they really desired, as they said, to order the games justly, and if this was the cause for which they had come to Egypt, they advised them to order the contest so as to be for strangers alone to contend in, and that no Eleans should be permitted to contend. 
Such was the suggestion made by the Egyptians to the Eleans. When Samus had been king of Egypt for only six years and had made an expedition to Ethiopia and immediately afterwards had ended his life, Aprius, the son of Samus, received the kingdom in succession. This man came to be the most prosperous of all the kings up to that time except only his forefather, Semeticos, and he reigned five and twenty years during which he led an army against Sidon and fought a sea fight with the king of Tyre. Since, however, it was fated that evil should come upon him, it came by occasion of a matter which I shall relate at greater length in the Libyan history, and at present but shortly. Aprius, having set a great expedition against the Carinians, met with correspondingly great disaster, and the Egyptians, considering him to blame for this, revolted from him, supposing that Aprius had with forethought sent them out to evident calamity, in order, as they said, that there might be a slaughter of them, and he might the more securely rule over the other Egyptians. Being indignant at this, both these men who had returned from the expedition, and also the friends of those who had perished, made revolt openly. Hearing this, Aprius sent to them Amasis, to cause them to cease by persuasion. And when he had come, and was seeking to restrain the Egyptians, as he was speaking and telling them not to do so, one of the Egyptians stood up behind him, and put a helmet upon his head, saying as he did so that he put it on to crown him king. And to him this that was done was in some degree not unwelcome, as he proved by his behavior. For as soon as the revolted Egyptians had set him up as king, he prepared to march against Aprius. And Aprius, hearing this, sent to Amasis, one of the Egyptians who were about his own person, a man of reputation whose name was Paterbemus, enjoining him to bring Amasis alive into his presence. When this Paterbemus came and summoned Amasis, the latter, who happened to be sitting on horseback, lifted up his leg and behaved in an unseemly manner, bidding him take that back to Aprius. Nevertheless, they say, Paterbemus made demand of him that he should go to the king, seeing that the king had sent to summon him. And he answered him that he had for some time past been preparing to do so, and that Aprius would have no occasion to find fault with him, for he would both come himself and bring others with him. Then Paterbemus, both perceiving his intention from that which he said, and also seeing his preparations, departed in haste, desiring to make known as quickly as possible to the king the things which were being done. And when he came back to Aprius, not bringing Amasis, the king paying no regard to that which he said, but being moved by violent anger, ordered his ears and his nose to be cut off. And the rest of the Egyptians, who still remained on his side, when they saw the man of most repute among them thus suffering shameful outrage, waited no longer, but joined the others in revolt, and delivered themselves over to Amasis. Now he had about him Carian and Ionian mercenaries to the number of thirty thousand, and his royal palace was in the city of Sais, of great size and worthy to be seen. So Aprius and his army were going against the Egyptians and Amasis, and those with him were going against the mercenaries, and both sides came to the city of Momemphis, and were about to make trial of one another in fight. Now of the Egyptians there are seven classes, and of these one class is called that of the priests, and another that of the warriors, while the others are the cowherds, swineherds, shopkeepers, interpreters, and boatmen. This is the number of classes of the Egyptians, and their names are given them from the occupations which they follow. Of them the warriors are called Calasirians and Hermotibians, and they are of the following districts, for all Egypt is divided into districts. The districts of the Hermotibians are those of Busiris, Sais, Chemis, Pepremis, the island called Prosopitis, and the half of Natho. 
Of these districts are the Hermitibians, who reached when most numerous the number of sixteen myriads. Of these not one has been learned anything of handicraft, but they are given up to war entirely. Again the districts of the Calisarians are those of Thebes, Bubastus, Aptus, Tanis, Mendes, Sebenutos, Athribus, Farbathos, Tumus, Anupus, Anutis, Mycephorus, this last is on an island opposite to the city of Bubastus. These are the districts of the Calisarians, and they reached when most numerous to the number of five and twenty myriads of men. Nor is it lawful for these any more than for the others to practice any craft, but they practice that which has to do with war only, handing down the tradition from father to son. Now whether the Hellenes have learnt this also from the Egyptians I am not able to say for certain, since I see that the Thracians also, and Scythians, and Persians, and Lydians, and almost all the barbarians, esteem those of their citizens who learn the arts, and the descendants of them, as less honorable than the rest, while those who have got free from all practice of manual arts are accounted noble, and especially those who are devoted to war. However that may be, the Hellenes have all learnt this, and especially the Lacedaemonians, but the Corinthians least of all cast slight upon those who practice handicraft. The following privilege was specially granted to this class and to none others of the Egyptians except the priests. That is to say, each man had twelve yokes of land specially granted to him free from imposts. Now the yoke of land measures a hundred Egyptian cubits every way, and the Egyptian cubit is, as it happens, equal to that of Samos. This, I say, was a special privilege granted to all, and they also had certain advantages in turn and not the same men twice. That is to say, a thousand of the Calisarians and a thousand of the Hermitibians acted as bodyguard to the king during each year, and these had besides their yokes of land an allowance given them for each day of five pounds weight of bread to each man, and two pounds of beef, and four half-pints of wine. This was the allowance given to those who were serving as the king's bodyguard for the time being.' 